Chapter Three of Bernard Treves Boots, a novel of the Secret Service by Lawrence Clark. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Six days later, Manton found himself once more in Lymington, alone in Treves' lodgings, in the crowded room littered with that young man's desirable possessions. Those possessions were, for the time being, his own. Even Treves' name was his, for carrying out his bargain, Treves had vanished from the scene. Again Manton fell to wondering why the other had been so anxious to dispossess himself of name and identity. There was nothing criminal in the matter, he was assured of that, otherwise Captain Gilbert would not have had a hand in it. The idea that the lieutenant had suffered from shell-shock, and desired to hide himself from all who knew him for a time, until he had recovered, came to Manton, and struck him as feasible. He had himself known quite a number of peculiar manifestations of this particularly mysterious disease. In any case, whatever Treves' reasons, it mattered little to Manton at that moment. I have simply got to make myself act as Treves, and to do the best I can in Treves' shoes for the time being. A few days earlier the young man had written him a letter in which he had said, Use everything of mine as if it were your own. It is only fair, if you get the kicks meant for me, you should get the haypence as well. I have few relations, and none of them are likely to bother you. When we shall meet again I do not know, but in the meantime au revoir. I wonder what you will feel like this time next year." Manton, in the quiet of the room, took some considerable time trying to realize his new circumstances and gradually the sense of strangeness and mystery that enveloped him began to fade away. In all his life Manton had been used to the buffets and hard knocks of fate. He began to wonder what his immediate future in Treves' shoes held for him. Both parents having died in India, he had been educated from a small fund in the hands of a guardian, first in Germany and later at Rugby. After that he spent two years at Bonn, his resources were at an end, and the guardian, feeling that he had done his duty, left him to fend for himself. A period of hard going had followed, until the war broke out, whereupon he precipitately enlisted in the first hundred thousand. If he had waited a little longer, a commission would have been thrust upon him, as it was upon all public school men in any way eligible. Treves past, Manton surmised, had not been of that nature, for despite the poorness of the young man's lodgings, all his belongings were of the costliest order, and all these belongings were now his, Manton's, to do with as he liked. The idea came to him to write to Captain Gilbert, thanking him for the amicable intervention that had wrought this change in his circumstances. He sat down, drew forth a sheet of Treves' notepaper, and had taken up a pen when a knock came at the door, and the landlady appeared. "'You'd like some tea, sir, wouldn't you?' "'Yes, thank you,' answered the young man. "'I've dusted the room every day, sir, since you've been away,' said the landlady. "'It's exactly as I left it,' responded he truthfully. She was looking at him across the width of the little room, but there was no doubt or curiosity in her gaze. She had accepted him instantly on his arrival that day, 
as Bernard Treves, and even now, looking at him full and closely, no doubt of deception entered her mind. I wonder what she'd think, he pondered inwardly, if Treves were to come in behind her now. But no such dramatic event occurred. The landlady brought up his tea, and later furnished him with a bottle of whisky, a siphon of soda, and a glass. Next morning, when she cleared these things away, she was surprised to find that no more than one peg of whisky had been taken. "'Wasn't you feeling well, sir, last night?' she asked. "'Quite,' answered Manton, who was busy with an excellent breakfast. She went away wondering. Until that day she had never known Mr. Trees to drink less than a half-bottle of whisky in the course of an evening. During the morning John went for a stroll in the town, and on his return the landlady handed him a letter which had arrived by the post in his absence. Manton took it up to his room and noticed that the handwriting was sprawling and shaky. Twice he read the superscription, Bernard Treves, Esquire, 15, Sade Road, Lymington. He hesitated several minutes before breaking open the envelope. He felt as though he were stepping beyond the pale of decency in opening the letter addressed to another man, then he recalled Treves' admonition, everything that is mine is yours. He tore open the envelope. Within was a single sheet of paper headed, Heatherfield Grange, Freshwater. Manton quickly scanned the contents. Dear Bernard, they tell me you are in hiding, as well you may be, but if you have a spark of decency left in you, you will come here to me at the first opportunity. There are things I have to say to you. You have dishonoured and disgraced the family name, but I have still a faint hope that you will retrieve yourself at the last moment. Your affectionate father, R.T. For many minutes John Manton sat staring at this letter, staring from the stiff, sprawling writing out into the little street and back again. All that day he pondered upon the missive he had received from Treves' father. He wondered what it was Treves had done, and why he should have been skulking in hiding at that address. A sense of uneasiness swept over him, and was succeeded by a violent curiosity. For the first time he felt vividly interested in Treves and Treves' history, and at the same time doubtful and uneasy. Unpleasant and difficult situations presented themselves to his mind. Next morning, as a result of a decision he had taken, he was on his way to Freshwater by midday. At three o'clock in the afternoon he walked through the town and out to Heatherfield Grange, which he discovered to be a large, many-chimneyed, many-windowed Elizabethan mansion, standing in a spacious, heavily-wooded park. The mansion itself was approached by a long carriage-drive, too much overshadowed by trees, and when Manton reached the lodge-gates, a bent old man, who was sweeping leaves from the path, hurried forward and drew open the gate for him to enter. The man drew himself up and saluted. "'Good day, Master Bernard!' Manton nodded and smiled. As he walked along the drive towards the grand old house, his pulse-beat quickened. After all, had he a right to act the part? Was it honourable and fair that he should thus step into another man's shoes? The undergardener had taken him for Bernard Treves, the whole world evidently was prepared to believe in the deception. 
but there was Treves's father to face. Naturally, Treves's father would detect an impostor in a moment. But was he an impostor? Was it not probable that the elder Treves also was aware of what had occurred? The broad front door of the mansion was opened to him. A white-haired butler with pouches under his eyes, and a general air of world-weariness, looked at him from the threshold, and slowly lifted his eyes in surprise. "'Good afternoon, sir,' said the butler. He took Manton's hat and stick, and deferentially stood aside. "'Your father will indeed be pleased and surprised to see you, sir,' he said as he closed the door. His manner was studiously civil, and yet somehow Manton felt a lack of cordiality towards himself in the butler's tone. "'Possibly he's a privileged servant,' he thought, "'and does not like Mr. Bernard.' "'Where is—is the Colonel?' he asked, after a moment's hesitation. "'In the library, sir, as usual. Will you go up at once?' "'Yes.' He wondered consumedly where the Colonel's room might be, and experienced a pleasant thrill of impending event. He attempted a little harmless finesse to discover the way. Perhaps you will go first and tell him I am here. Very good, sir. The butler looked at him meditatively for a moment, then went to a side table and took up a silver salver containing three letters and a telegram. Manton seized the moment to survey the heavy splendor of the dark antique furniture, the wide spaces of the hall, and the richness of the rugs scattered over the polished floor. High above the mantel-shelf hung a portrait in oils of a personage in eighteenth-century costume. Descending to the middle of the hall was a wide oak balustraded staircase, carpeted in scarlet, a single flight ascended to the first floor, then branched to right and left. "'Your letter, sir,' the butler was standing at Manton's elbow, with the silver salver extended. John took up the three letters and the telegram. A renewed and intensified disinclination to pry into Bernard Treves's affairs seized him. He was about to put letters and telegram into his pocket, when the butler spoke in his firm, polite voice. There was a note of reproach in his tone, however. "'The telegram came two days ago, sir.' "'Oh!' exclaimed Manton, and under the bleak eye of the butler he disinterred it from his pocket, tore open the envelope, and read the contents. The telegram had been dispatched from Camden Town, and ran, "'Wire when you can come. Of course I will forgive you, Elaine.' He was conscious, as he read the words, that the butler's eyes were fixed steadily upon him. Then the old servant turned and preceded him towards the broad staircase. They ascended to the first landing, and here the butler wheeled to the right and halted before a double green baize door. The elderly man knocked, paused for a moment, then pushed open the door and stepped into a room lined with books a spacious, luxuriously furnished apartment, with two mullioned windows overlooking the park. John, following him, saw him cross to a deep, high-backed armchair near the hearth. "'Mr. Bernard's here, sir,' he announced, standing before the chair. There was a movement in the chair, then a tall, soldierly, grey-haired man revealed himself, leaning on a stick, and looked across at Manton. 
He looked at him with a cold, inimical gaze, and, until the butler had closed the door and departed, did not utter a word. Then he spoke. "'So you've come, you dog, have you?' The almost savage intensity of dislike and contempt in his tone struck the young man like a blow in the face. "'I got your letter,' he began. "'Oh, yes, I found out where you were.' Well, he went on harshly, there is no need for us to waste compliments on each other. We will settle the business that is to be settled at once. He moved shakily towards a desk in the middle of the room, using his stick as a support. Manton, seeing his frailty, hurried forward to assist him, but the old man drew himself erect, raised his stick, and flashed a look at him of utter repulsion. Do not dare to lay a hand on me he said violently. When he reached his desk, he seated himself in a big swivel chair, drew out a drawer, and flung certain documents on the table. From under his eyebrows he glowered at Manton. "'Sit down,' he commanded. John moved to the table-side, and occupied a chair near his elbow. Among a pile of documents, Colonel Treves searched for a certain typewritten sheet. He found it at length, a long yellow piece of official paper. "'Listen to this,' he commanded. From the table beside him he took up a square reading-glass and deciphered the typewritten paper with faded grey eyes. "'This,' he vouchsafed, raising his eyes, "'is from my old good friend General Whiston.' He paused a moment, and John seized the opportunity to intervene. "'May I say a word, sir?' "'No!' thundered Treves. Then he read aloud in a voice vibrant with emotion. "'My dear Treves, your boy had every chance. It was the merest fluke in the world that he escaped as easily as he did. He is not of the right stuff, and my condolences are with you. I wish I could suggest something, but I cannot. I know, old friend, what a tragedy this must be to you.' The colonel stopped abruptly, flung down his reading-glass, and looked into Manton's face. "'Well?' he demanded. "'What do you think of that?' Manton said nothing. "'Can you read between the lines?' questioned the elder man. "'It suggests,' said John, after a moment's hesitation, "'that the punishment meted out to, to me was a light one.' "'I see you are as evasive as ever,' retorted Colonel Treves. He turned and smote the open letter twice with the back of his hand. "'In this letter, General Whiston,' he measured his words slowly, "'tells me, by implication, that you are guilty of cowardice in the face of the enemy. You, a Treves!' Then, in a moment, the anger that had vivified him seemed to fade. He appeared to Manton to become suddenly old, bowed, and pitiful. The expression on his face was one of anguish. The dishonor that had befallen his name was no less than torture to him. But once again he recovered himself and gripped the arms of his chair with both white-knuckled hands. "'You know the just punishment for cowardice in the face of the enemy?' He was leaning towards Manton now. His mouth twitched but there was a blaze in the old grey eyes. "'I know it, sir,' said John quietly. 
the colonel drew in his breath slowly and sat erect ah you know and having escaped that punishment and knowing yourself to be guilty you skulk in hiding you fail to seize the one chance that is open to you to redeem the past what is the chance inquired manton forgetting himself for a moment the colonel stared at him in astonishment the chance of re-enlistment of course instead of doing that he went on you write me a whining letter saying you can't stand the trenches you can't face it your nerves bah nerves my god and you a treves he hurled these words forth with a contempt and loathing that was like a blow in the face but manton noticed that he was breathing heavily the emotional intensity of his feelings was wearing on him and the young man felt a sudden tenderness towards this old stricken bitterly disappointed father is it too late now sir he asked quietly what is it too late for me to make good talk exclaimed the colonel in bitter derision always talk with you you don't mean that any more than you meant any of the lying promises you made to me in the past you have always been a liar a liar a spendthrift and a fool and now added to all these things to your gambling and your profligacy you finished as a he paused and manton ventured in regards to a way out sir the colonel looked at him with renewed ferocity then his expression slowly changed for some seconds he was silent and without a glance at manton he began to fumble at a drawer he drew it open at length and groped in its interior his hand shook visibly but there was something in his attitude some strange intensity of purpose that riveted manton's attention presently the colonel discovered the object he sought and revealed from the depths of the drawer an automatic pistol if you have a shred of honor left you will know what to do he said grimly he reached out and laid the weapon on the corner of the desk at the young man's side. End of chapter 3